The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Okay, if you have a Bible, if you can turn with me to uh, John's first letter and chapter 4. Otherwise, it will be on the slides, I hope. Uh, And my title for this morning is Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So this is 1 John chapter 4 and verses 1 to 6. So just to get the kind of context and the big picture, I want to read you the passage that I've been given to teach in one go, and then we'll kind of break it down and think about it in different sections. So we read, Beloved, 1 John 4 verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that has not confessed Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now if you've got predictive text on your phone, you've got to be very careful that you... Uh, communicate what you really want to say with predicted text. Now, you'll have to remember that in England we don't have semesters in universities, we have terms. And there was a girl at university in England that I heard about and she got talking to a male friend one day and they chatted and uh, this student, he really liked this girl and at the end of the uh, day he sent her a text asking if he could take her out for a meal. And she sent a text back But in the days that followed, uh, she kind of heard, this girl heard on the grapevine that that this male friend was rather upset and that she was the cause of him being upset and she was a bit puzzled and so she decided to have a look at her phone to see what she'd written in her text. She thought that she'd type this, I won't be free now until the end of term. But actually she'd written, I won't be free until the end of time. The perils of predictive text miscommunication. Here's my first heading. This is verse 1. A plea for discernment. A plea for discernment. So we begin here uh, with John's, uh, this passage from John, with a a plea for discernment, discernment in the life of the believer. So John writes this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So what we have here is a reminder to be careful about who influences us. And it's a reminder that we all need. Now, obviously John's letter had a context to it. And we've seen this in previous weeks, but towards the end of the first century when John wrote this letter, uh, there were people called Gnostics who had infiltrated the church. Or maybe there were people in the church who'd been influenced by the Gnostics. I don't think we really know. But I explained quite a lot about 
the Gnostics four weeks ago when I spoke to you, but essentially the Gnostics were a kind of sect who believed that they'd attained a higher, purer form of Christianity than anybody else. They thought they had this special understanding from God, that they had special revelations, special experiences, uh, and they, they taught that somehow they had ascended into the world of the spirit um, and had overcome the physical realm. So for them, physical matter was bad, even evil. So they thought, the Gnostics thought that they were the spiritual ones in the church, and uh, they looked down on other people as inferior believers, those who were not Gnostics like they were with their special revelation. Now, my wife has a blender. It's an American-made blender, and she loves it. She calls it a a seventh baby, and it's a well-traveled blender. She insists that we take it around with us, around the world with us. Uh, We had it in England, then we had it in Uganda, then we uh, back to England, and then we have it here in Thailand, and it's great for making smoothies. It blends the fruit perfectly together until you can't tell where one fruit starts, is that right? Uh, stops and another one starts. Now, Gnosticism was what you got when you foolishly tried to blend Greek philosophy with Christianity in the same blender and kind of mix them up. And here's the thing, that because Greek thinking was dominant in the Greco-Roman world that was the background to this letter, then the ideas of the Gnostics seemed to be very plausible to those who heard them. And we'll see, think about this later. But just about all false teaching in the church results from a, an attempt to blend Christianity with the prevailing ideas of the culture. But Gnosticism was a poisonous mixture, a toxic mixture. And the cost for the church of listening to the Gnostics was very high. Especially this belief that they had that physical matter was bad. You see, the Gnostics denied God's good creation, that God made the world and he called it good. But of particular relevance for this passage, their belief that matter was bad meant that they had to deny that the Son of God could could have taken on flesh. They had to deny that the Son of God could become a man, that he could become one of us. So if you look in verse 2, it says, By this you know the Spirit of God Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that has not confessed Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now already in the world. So here was the big issue at stake. If the Gnostics were correct and physical matter was essentially bad, then the Son of God could not have become human. So as he walked the dusty roads of Israel in the years when he was on the earth, and he wasn't really human. He just had the appearance of being human. He wasn't really a man. So the Christians that John was writing to had to work out what they believed, as Christians in all generations do. Um, They had to work out what they thought was true about Jesus. And of course, what you believe about Jesus, the whole of the gospel, the whole of Christianity hangs upon it. So John says, Do not believe every spirit, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And with the benefit of 2,000 years of hindsight, as we look back through church history, we can say that this is kind of the history of the church. There have been many counterfeit versions of the truth in the history of the church. And of course, it's no different today. We all need to heed John's warning. 
You know, I think we live in an age of increasing biblical and theological illiteracy. And so in that kind of context, we need to be increasingly careful what we believe. Thirty years ago, I worked for a bank. I feel old when I say that. Um, but it was 30 years ago at least. And um, one of my jobs was to take in cash. And I was trained to look for counterfeit notes. And I took in lots and lots of money, never spotted one, never saw one. And then one day this lady, who was a la- the landlady of a pub in the town where I, where I worked, she came in with a great bundle of 50-pound notes. Uh, and I had to count them. And as I was counting them, one of them looked a bit strange. And I took a second look at it. And at first I thought it was a genuine note, but when I looked more carefully and I looked for a watermark, there wasn't one. And I realised it was a counterfeit note and I was just relieved I'd spotted it, otherwise it might have come out of my salary. But today John is reminding us to be alert for teaching that at first looks to be genuine, but when we look more carefully at it, is not genuine. Because any teaching that is not genuine, it's not just a matter of this being something that's not true, but false teaching works its way through the church and does tremendous damage, and of course does tremendous damage to our lives. So he says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is a common thing, he's reminding us. So that's my first point. It's a plea for discernment, for care in what we believe. It's a reminder that truth matters and that every false belief diminishes something important. Truth matters and every false belief diminishes something that really matters. My second heading is this, denying the incarnation. This is verses 2 to 3, denying the incarnation. So as we've thought about already, for these Christians that John was writing to, Uh, The issue was the incarnation. The incarnation is just a fancy word for what we call the eternal Son of God becoming a man at Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. The question is, for the Gnostics, they didn't believe that the Son of God had become a human being at Bethlehem without losing all of his divinity, which is the, the claim of Christianity. It's what the Gnostics denied that the one who walked the earth was, was fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ. You know, C.S. Lewis called the incarnation the greatest miracle of all, uh, that God could become a man. And his point is this, that if it's true that the Son of God became a man, then all the other miracles that surround the life of Jesus are not really a surprise. Walking on water, turning water into wine, raising the dead, healing the sick, Uh, driving out demons from people, uh, a death with huge significance, his resurrection, all those things are not really a surprise if he really was the God-man. They just kind of, we'd expect those things, they follow from his divinity, from from him being God incarnate. You know, years ago I was watching an evangelist preaching in England, and he wasn't preaching to a very... Um, sympathetic crowd. He was in the open air and there were mockers there. And he was preaching. One of them interrupted him and said, Have you ever seen God? And this evangelist, this preacher, he thought for a moment and then he replied, No, but only because I was born at the wrong, pl- at the wrong time and in the wrong place. 
If I'd been born 2,000 years ago and had lived in Israel, I would have seen him. And that was a good answer. But the point is that the, the Gnostics were denying, sorry, they were not denying the divinity of Jesus in some sense, nor that he pre-existed his time on earth. What the Gnostics were denying was his humanity. They were denying that he became one of us. And so, remembering that truth matters, as we've thought about already, and that all false teaching has consequences, let's ask the question, if the Son hadn't become one of us, hadn't become a man, a human being, as the Gnostics were claiming, then what would be at stake? What would be lost if he hadn't become a man? Well, we could spend the rest of the day thinking about this. I've chosen two things to mention to you which I think are very important and a bit different. So here's the first one. Because of our sin, and because God is holy and he is perfectly just, then all of us stand under a cosmic death sentence. None of us will survive an encounter with a holy God who is perfectly just because we're all sinful. And so we all have a debt that has to be paid. We all owe a great debt. So here's the point that the debt that Adam owed, our great-great-great-grandfather and Eve owed, and you owe, and I owe, that has to be incurred by a human being because the sin has been incurred by, by human beings. And so it must be paid by a human being. You can pay your debt, the price for your sin, and my sin is eternal separation from God, eternal death, it is exclusion from God's presence forever, or we can trust in God's substitute for us. His son became a man, to pay our debt instead of us. So whereas the first Adam disobeyed at a tree, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, obeyed on a tree, the tree of Calvary. He pays for you and he pays for me and all who would ever believe upon him. So at Calvary, Jesus was forsaken by God so that we never need be forsaken by him. So the one who says, unless you repent, you will perish. He perishes for us. So this is, the one, this is one reason why Jesus Christ had to come in the flesh. He had to become one of us because he had to come to be as our representative. He had to become our mediator. He had to become our substitute. He had to obey when we never obeyed. He had to pay a debt that we could never pay. But the point that I want us to see is that in denying that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, the Gnostics had just cut the heart out of the Christian faith. And they'd cut away any possibility that anybody could be saved. That was what was at stake. Can you see that truth matters? That theology matters? You see, the debt for sin was incurred by a human being or by human beings collectively, and it must be paid by a human the only one who didn't have any debt to pay, in this case, Jesus Christ. Now, if we had time, we could think about many other things that hang on the incarnation, uh, upon the coming of the Son of God as a man. But let me mention one other thing uh, that hangs on the incarnation. It's this, suffering in the life of the believer. Suffering in the life of the believer. You know, suffering comes to all of us at various times, at various times in our lives, in one form or another. For some, suffering is just a way of life. It's unrelenting for other people. It comes in certain seasons. Of course, that's why if we make happiness the meaning of our life, we're going to have big problems. 
because suffering is always a part of life. Uh, We might think of physical suffering. For some people, their main suffering is physical. But for other people, the suffering that they experience is mental anguish uh, of some form. And it's hard to know which one is worse, physical suffering or mental suffering. But here's the point. When we think about the question of suffering, or why am I suffering, one thing that we can never say after the incarnation is that Jesus Christ doesn't understand, that he's indifferent and he's detached from what I'm going through. This has huge pastoral implications. I remember a friend who was going through some very difficult physical suffering and when I expressed sympathy to him and for him, he said, it's okay, the Lord knows, he's been where I am. It didn't take away his pain, but he found great consolation in knowing that his saviour was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You know, suffering is perhaps the greatest objection to God's existence today, when you talk to people who don't believe the gospel. But the incarnation reminds us that the Son of God is not some remote religious commentator on the affairs of this broken race. He is intimately involved in its sufferings and in its tragedies. So we must never say, God doesn't understand my suffering. God doesn't know what I'm going through. He does. The Son incarnate understands. He's been there. And here's the point that Jesus Christ took our misery and our suffering so seriously that he was willing to become one of us and experience the worst suffering imaginable in order that he might one day destroy it forever and bring about a world where there is no pain and no suffering and no tears. A world of perfection. What I want you to see is that if we lose the incarnation as these Gnostics were suggesting, then we lose so much. That's of critical importance to the Christian faith. Not just in our kind of theological ideas, but in our experience of how we do life. Can you tell, let me just read you a story. This is, you might know this story before. You might know this story. It's called The Long Silence. I've got no, no idea who wrote it. The Long Silence. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with crins, cringing shame, but with belligerence. How can God judge us? How can he know about suffering, snapped one girl. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture and death just because we were Jews, she said. In another group, a black man lowered his collar. What about this, he he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes said, Why should I suffer? It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the even suffering that he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where all all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear or hunger or hatred. What did God know all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they agreed. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a black person, uh, 
a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a child with napalm burns. In the centre of the plane, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. And it was all rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted all of his life. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think that he's out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of the people assembled. And when at last they had finished pronouncing their sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved, for suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. If you're suffering at the moment, and remember that if you are suffering at the moment, and remember that that is normal in a broken world such as ours, then Jesus knows and he understands. He's not indifferent to your suffering. He's experienced great suffering. And although your suffering is not redemptive in the way that Christ was redemptive, it will not be for nothing. And that means that when suffering comes, and suffering is inevitable, that misery is not always the result. We can have hope in the midst of suffering. So in denying the incarnation, can you see what the Gnostics had done to the Christian faith? If Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, if, if the Son did not become one of us, then we lose so much. In fact, we lose the whole gospel, we lose the whole message of redemption. And that's why John is so strong. He says, every spirit that has not confessed that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world. I'm not going to do the Antichrist this morning. So that's my second point. Denying the incarnation has consequences. My third heading is this. The witness of the apostle. The witness of the apostle. This is verses 5 to 6. So I want to think about John, the apostolic witness. And I want to contrast him with the Gnostics' special revelation, in inverted commas. The Gnostics thought they had special revelation. Whereas John was a man with this apostolic witness and testimony. Look in verse 5. Um, They, John says, the Gnostics, are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever listens, sorry, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So John identifies with his readers. He says we are, uh, he says we are from God. And then he claims the ability to be able to identify truth and error. 
Now, it's easy to make that kind of claim. John is making the claim that he knows the truth. Anybody can make that claim, can't they, that they know the truth. In fact, the Gnostics were making that claim as well, that they were of the truth. But John calls them of the world. In other words, he's saying that the Gnostics were in opposition to Christ. Now then, in that time in the first century, and perhaps even more now, we might ask John how he dares to make such a claim to be from God and possess the truth. How can he differentiate truth from error? You know, we live in the so-called postmodern age. Uh, or certainly in the Western world, we live in the postmodern age, uh, or what's called the postmodern age. And in the East, uh, we might call it the pantheistic age. But in reality, they're very close on the issue of truth, or absolute truth. They both deny its possibility in the East and the West. It's incredible how the East and West are coming together in their philosophical thinking, really, in lots of ways. But in the West today, all truth is relative. This is how many people think. You have your truth and I have my truth. Uh, We have hundreds of years of intellectual history since the Enlightenment, and that's where we've landed uh, in a world of relativism, with our feet firmly planted in thin air, with no truth. Your truth... My truth, everybody's truth is different. And that's how we kind of have agreed to live. Whether we can sustain society like that forever, I highly doubt it. But in the East, if you're a Buddhist or if you're a Hindu, then it's not very different. You see, in the end, truth and falsehood are just the same. As are good and evil, light and darkness, there's only one final reality in the end. Uh, The rest is illusion. Uh, We've got more thin air to plant our feet on. But John claims this, that he knows the truth. Is he arrogant? Is he intolerant? Is he divisive in a world of many, many options, as many people would claim today? Doesn't your truth depend upon your culture? Doesn't it depend upon your upbringing? And if we get right up to date in the contemporary world, doesn't truth depend on your skin colour, your sexual preference, the pronouns that you give yourself? We all see the world according to our identity that we've decided for ourselves, and we all see it differently. How dare John claim to know the truth? This isn't something that I think we need to think a lot about in today's generation and time that we live in. You see, John was not just some regular guy. He was one of the apostles of Jesus. And very likely by this time, he was the only remaining apostle. I think he was the only one who wasn't martyred for proclaiming the resurrection. And that meant that John had been with Jesus Christ. He'd lived with him for three years. He claimed to be with the one who made the claim for himself that he was divine, Jesus Uh, He claimed to have been with the one who was not a truth, but the truth about the universe. Uh, He claimed to be the eternal word of God. Um, And Jesus Christ, having made such claims, he authorized a select group of men to declare him to the world. We call them his disciples or his apostles as they became. Now, we could think here about the whole question of biblical authority, but, um, but the issue that is really in my mind at the moment, so I'm thinking about this, is this, is there truth in this world? Is there truth with a capital T? Is there truth that is more than any person's preference and any person's opinion? What Francis Schaeffer called true truth. 
that applies to everybody. Now, you may be here this morning and you may not be a Christian. Um, But the claim of Christianity is that the God who made this universe and who made us in his own image, uh, the claim of Christianity is that God is not a figment of anybody's imagination, that he is really there. And he's revealed who he is fundamentally through the person of his son who came to earth 2,000 years ago. And deciding whether you believe that to be true or not is the biggest decision that you will ever make in your life. Is Jesus Christ who he said he was? There was a time when I didn't believe that, but I do now. You see, the claim of Christianity and Scripture is that there really is truth for every person and truth for every culture. And upon that truth, we can build our lives and we can possess answers to the greatest questions of all. You see, the incarnation is many things. But fundamentally it is this. It is a declaration that God has spoken in the person of his Son. And whoever follows him does not need to live in darkness any longer, but can have the light of life. How many people do you know who just live in darkness? They get to 75 years old, they look back and they think the whole of their life has just kind of been thrashing around trying to find a bit of happiness and a bit of meaning. have no idea what the world is about. The claim of Jesus Christ is that those who follow him will not walk in darkness. So Jesus' claim is that, or this is the implication of Jesus' claims, is that we now know that life is not some terrible tale of being trapped by our karma forever, with the only hope of being released, of being released is being absorbed into the great oneness of the universe um, as, um, uh, after numerous rebirths as, um, as Buddha claimed. And by the same token, the claim of Jesus Christ is that we now know that we're not lost in some kind of postmodern maze where every voice in the world is equally valid, equally true and equally not true, uh, where every truth claim is not where every uh, truth claim is not just a person's preference. Uh, the claims of Jesus Christ, the claim of Jesus Christ is that we're not abandoned to the, the crazy thinkers of the last 250 years, to Marx and, and Freud and Darwin and all the other great thinkers who've poisoned our world with meaninglessness and hopelessness, that we're not highly evolved pond slime and we're not inhabiting an accidental universe that will one day be extinct along with us. You see, the message of the Incarnation and the apostolic witness through John and Paul and Peter and Matthew is that the truth about the universe is at hand. And it's a message full of hope. It's a message that God loves this crazy, broken planet with all its wickedness and evil. He loves it. Uh, And he calls us to, to find salvation in the midst of it, to find redemption in the midst of it, believing and knowing that one day he will redeem the whole of the cosmos, the whole of the universe, that we can find meaning and purpose in this life, and one day we shall be with him forever. So after Jesus, if the Christian faith is true, after Jesus, no one needs to need say anymore, why is there a world? Why is everything so broken? Why was I born? Who am I in this world? Why, how can I have peace? What happens to me when I die? What do I do with my life? What is a successful life? What is a failed life? You see, after Jesus' incarnation, we have the answers to the greatest questions of all. It's either true or it's not true, and deciding whether it's true is the greatest thing you will ever think about.
So this is Christianity. That God has spoken. That the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. That's what John wrote in his Gospel, chapter 1. He said, the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. So we beheld his glory, the glory as of only one and only, the Son of the Father. You see, John was there with Jesus. He wasn't some regular guy with his opinion. He listened, he watched and he wondered when he saw this life, this magnificent life with perfect character, uh, words from heaven. He watched, he wondered and he reported to the world about this incredible man, Jesus, the God-man. He did it for you and I that we might read about him this morning. So as John wrote these words, and we read of his claim to know the truth and to be able to distinguish between truth and error, all of his life is in the background. His whole, the whole of his biographies and biographies in the background. He'd been with Jesus, and he was a, an apostle sent to report the words of Jesus. So you see, like unlike my evangelist friend, evangelist friend, John's claim that, it, that is that he wasn't born at the wrong time, that he was an eyewitness. And it's like this: forget the Gnostics with their special revelation. He's saying, I've beheld the glory of Jesus Christ. He is the truth, and he sent me as a witness to the truth. And just as these early Christians could trust the apostolic confession, so can we, as it's recorded in the text of Scripture. So that's the third, my third heading, the witness of the apostle. And finally, just one more thing to think about before I finish. It's this. Today's battles, today's truth battle or battles, in the first century, the big thing that they had to contend with was Gnosticism. Well, there were other things as well in the church. But they were, one of the big things was Gnosticism. What kind of things do we have to watch out for today? That's what I want to think about for the last five minutes. What kind of things do we have to think about today and watch out for? What kind of heresy? What kind of false teaching? Well, as I said to you before, false teaching in the church is always the result of a blend between, between Christianity and the ideas of the culture. It's nearly always an attempt to reconcile the Christian faith with the ideas of the world. So, for example, in the first century, the Gnostics, um, because they were so influenced by Greek philosophy, couldn't believe that the Son of God could become a man because they thought matter was bad. It was even evil. If you go back 200 years, there was this idea in, um, uh, after the Enlightenment in the Western world uh, that the laws of science that had been discovered meant that miracles were impossible. And so lots of people in the church, they said, how do we reconcile Christianity with the idea that the laws of science can never be broken? They said, it, it can't be the case that Jesus could have walked on water or risen from the dead or been, a, uh, been incarnate. Uh, those things are just kind of additions to the gospel accounts added by the uh, disciples and the apostles. So we need to redesign Christianity to take out all the supernatural. And you've got liberalism, classical liberalism, 
in Victorian England and, and Germany in 1850, 1860 and so on and, and in America and in the Western world. They, so they try to reconcile the so-called dis- discoveries of science um, that the laws of science could never be broken with Christianity so they redesigned Jesus to be a good man not to be supernatural and so on. Uh, so you can see that this attempt to reconcile with the ideas of the culture. So what, what, where are the battles today? And uh, there's a danger when I say this that I haven't got time to qualify what I want to say and I don't want to be um, to say things that are too simplistic but one of them would be the prosperity gospel which I encountered in a big way in Africa that God wants to make you rich and happy and always healthy. The prosperity gospel. Uh, this attempt to reconcile the gospel with Western materialism and happiness. Uh, the, the second one that I think we wrestle with today is what I've called the green gospel, where saving the planet and climate justice become the big thing for the church. The major thing, the green gospel. I have friends who believe that that really is the mission of the church to save the planet and to fight against climate injustice as they would see it. The third one I I would call the social gospel where in today's climate uh, Christianity becomes fundamentally about equality, fairness and inclusion. Racial justice, gender justice, resource justice and so on. Uh, And some churches have taken on that as their big thing, as their main thing. The, the, the final one um, to mention, I think, this is where the battles are of today, um, the, where there's this attempt to blend Christianity with the ideas of the culture, is what, I've, what I'll call the contextual gospel. This is the idea that the way that we understand the gospel is dependent upon the culture that we come from or whether we're a man or a woman, or our sexual preference. I have friends, uh, again, who believe that if you're Indian, or you're Japanese, or you're American, you will all see the gospel fundamentally differently because of the culture that you come from. Um, And many mission agencies have really taken that on board. Now, of course, culture affects how we see the gospel, but it doesn't change the gospel itself. So what I'm not saying is that Christianity doesn't have something to say about all of those things. Of course it does. It has something to say about the planet. It has a lot to say about justice. It has a lot to say about helping people out of poverty. And we should give attention to those things. It has a lot to say about context. But fundamentally, those things which are the concerns of our society, generally in the Western world, are not the reason why Jesus Christ came into the world. You see, fundamentally, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. We've got to make sure that we keep the main thing the main thing. You see, the gospel, the scripture, the revelation of God in four installments, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, is fundamentally an announcement of who God is and who we are as lost sinners before him under his judgment. It's a rescue mission of lost sin, for lost sinners that we are saved from eternal damnation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
It's the establishment of worshipping churches who evangelize their communities. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit into our hearts that we may know God ourselves and love him and enjoy him forever. Now, should the church focus on, on helping the poor, helping save the planet, which is God's creation after all, uh, on social justice? Absolutely. But let's keep the main thing the main thing. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That we are lost without a saviour. We are broken because of the sin of Adam. And, we're, we're the, and Jesus Christ came to redeem us that we might be the human beings that he made us to be. So that's my final heading. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the apostolic witness of John and Paul and Matthew and many others who we can trust to convey to us the words and the life of the one who was the truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, my prayer this morning is that if there are people here who never never believed, that this morning they might believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And the second thing I pray is that we might see the importance of truth. That we might see how important it is that we hold on to this deposit of the teaching of Scripture that was entrusted to the apostles and has been handed to us in our day and generation that we might love the truth and proclaim the truth to a world that so desperately needs it. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.